Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, someone that lets us all step behind the scenes of our favorite movies. A man who has brought film school to so many people through his cinema. When the history books are written, his name is going to have to shine because it's his films that we see the craft come together. Tonight, I welcome Laurent Bozarreau. Laurent, how are things? I'm I'm good. Uh, uh, I didn't know you were talking about me actually in that description, but yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> You've been so instrumental to just behind the scenes documentaries. I you're such an important voice in the history of cinema. Do do you understand the amount that your films actually hold to cinephiles? You know, um, it's been interesting the past few years. I found myself working on on certain movies and and a director like J.A. Bayona, for example, said to me, oh, my God, I grew up watching your stuff. So, so yeah, it's happened to me recently that some people who um, are filmmakers today, uh, uh, y- y- you know, tell me that they've been uh, following my... Uh, my work, which makes me feel really good, needless to say. Um, and, uh, but, I, you know, I don't really think in those terms. I, I, I think in terms of, of constantly trying to reinvent myself, constantly in terms of, you know, putting sort of the work I've done behind me and looking ahead. Um, I'm, I'm not much of a person who looks back and, and, and uh, want to bask in some kind of, you you know uh, um, whatever you want to call it like uh, uh, that people actually that have made some kind of difference I, I I don't look at it that way but if it's brought up to my attention um, yes I'm I'm thrilled that some people have um, gotten something out of my work uh, I think that the thing that uh, for me. Uh, when I started doing this, you know, I, I was pretty much uh, the only person making a living out of doing those types of, of documentaries. And the thing that was really important to me was highlighting craft um, that are usually really for film buffs, you know, and, and trying to show how those people have such an important role in storytelling. So whether it's production designers or costume designers or sound designers or editors and so on, I really wanted to put a spotlight on those people. And when I started doing this kind of work, almost, I hate to say it, 30 years ago, a lot of those people are no longer with us. You know, like I remember one of the first DPs I ever interviewed was William Fraker, who shot, you know, uh, 1941, and he shot Rosemary's Baby, and I mean, was a huge, uh, huge DP, and and uh, no longer with us. Um, Alan Davio, who shot E.T. and Empire of the Sun and Color Purple, passed away actually of COVID the past few months. Uh, so suddenly. That's when I realized that I've done something that is really uh, important, which is to sort of uh, document some of those great, uh, um, great people who, who usually um, 
have remained completely uh, invisible, you know, to 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 the world. Um, and and you know, you talk sometimes to young people, and you say, well, "What do you want to do in film?" Or oh, I either want to become a star or a star director. You know, they they and suddenly, I think by highlighting and underlining those other crafts, hopefully somebody's going to say, hey, wait a minute, I should do sound design. That sounds really cool. Or I should be a production designer. That sounds really cool. Um, so I, I, I would love to think that by, by giving a voice to those people, you're shedding a light on crafts that are not necessarily the ones that make the red carpet uh, and that are on the cover of, of, of uh, magazines, but that are just equally as, as um, uh, satisfying and creative and part of the global family that really um, helps filmmakers making great movies. Well, you mentioned not really like looking back, but a lot of your subjects are are taking a look at what happened in in cinema's history, especially the 1970s. What do you mm-hmm. think it is about the 1970s that still resonates with young filmmakers today, even with the filmmakers that were working at that time? They're still drawing influences from that time. What do you think it was about the 1970s that is still resonating today? Well, you know, for one thing, I grew up in the 70s. So, you know, I I consider the 70s my formative years where I I literally was myself introduced to the language of film. And it was an exciting time for two reasons. Um, You still you were still close enough to the sort of golden age of Hollywood, like Hitchcock was still alive, right? Uh, uh, as was Robert Wise, and and, and, and making and making some of his best films, in my opinion. I think Hitch reached reached new levels in the nineteen seventies. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, he, he found himself. I, I'll answer your question first about the seventies. You know, so, so you're still close enough to the golden era of Hollywood. Uh, um, and yet there's this amazing transition happening where, where now you're actually filming on the streets. You're no longer filming in studios. You're no longer using rear projection. You're, you're actually, I mean, it, it's a whole new ways of, 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 uh, of filming. And that must have been really exciting for the new directors of that generation from Steven Spielberg to Brian De Palma, William Friedkin, Peter Bogdanovich, George Lucas, Coppola, I mean, all Scorsese, I mean, and so on. All those directors are basically uh, um, starting a whole brand new page in, in cinema. And that has never happened again in my mind. You know, it's everything that's happened since then is sort of inherited from the 70s. And yet those filmmakers are still very much in tune by the, the, the classic cinema of the 50s and 40s, uh, uh, the sort of people who created, you know, the language of a of, of film because they started off, you know, at, when cinema was just, you know, um, being invented. So 
I think there will never be another another time like the 70s for me because um, it, it really is a very privileged sort of transition where you still grew up, uh, the filmmakers of that time still grew up on what true cinema really is, you know, but they were able to make it their own because the method was um, evolving and changing. Um, and so I feel that a lot of current filmmakers or current film students do not have, you, you know, that sort of knowledge that extends far back to, to the true history and origin of, of, of this language. Um, so that, that's what makes the 70s very interesting to me. Um, and also, you have, um, and because I grew up in Europe, you, you, you see the movement that started off with Truffaut and Godard in the 60s, sort of um, evolving also in the 70s. Um, and I was exposed to Italian cinema, so Comancini, Ettore Scola, Stil Fellini, you know, and German cinema and Spanish cinema, like Carlos Saura, for example, is a, is a Spanish director that I, 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 I love. And um, it, was, it was really a time where all of those people are, are um, really exploding. And it's, again, I, I haven't seen that kind of phenomenon. And it could be that now there's so much product that it's impossible to, to really... Uh, look at everything and appreciate a movement. But that's, that's a movement that was, for me, and trying not to age myself, I would not trade that for anything else in the world. In other words, if you said, oh, you can be younger today and not experience that, I would say, no, I'd rather be older and experience that. Because each time I went to see a film, it was, it was a, an eye-opening uh, uh, experience, even the the bad ones and the good ones, there there was you could clearly see a movement, and because I had grown up on watching um, the classics, like uh, and little side note, in France uh, during the summer when I was growing up in the seventies they never released new movies because people went away during the summer. So they would re-release all the great classics, whether it's Ben-Hur, Javago, the, the old James Bond movies and all that stuff. They, were, they, they would re-release them on the big screen, brand new prints in regular movie theaters. So I got to see all those classics really as if they were brand new, fresh, fresh films. And I was able to really gauge the difference between, between the new wave of, of, of 70s filmmaking and, and the sort of school, the Hollywood uh, uh, school of, of cinema. Which brings me to Hitchcock because I saw Psycho for the first time in Paris, in the theaters. Uh, the movie was the equivalent of an X rating in France where if you were not 18, you could not see the movie. Total miracle, the film is re-released the month I turned 18, and I got to go see it in a movie theater. So I've never experienced 
psycho, but I never experienced it even on television, right? And and I to this day I can describe the weather. I can describe you know who was in the theater, the smell, the the everything which is not something I can say for anything I've seen recently, which I tend to forget really quickly and easily. So there was a sense of like um, history and, and, and a real sense of um, respect and, you know, a little bit like akin to going to a museum or to going to uh, um, a, a concert. Uh, there was real... Uh, a, a real look at things from the point of view of an auteur, meaning that if I'm seeing a Hitchcock movie and it's a bad one, I don't care because it's part of his body of work as an auteur, and therefore I'm able to appreciate it in relation to the amazing ones, right? And it's almost like being a person, you have good days and you have bad days. But same thing with artists, right? And 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 so that that was super exciting um, as a kid, you know, to um, to discover that all of that on my own. Because remember, this is prior to internet and all that stuff. And 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 the seventies have really that that innocence uh, um, in many ways, where where you would just uh, go and and enjoy things for what they were. I, I remember, you know, from day one, I never read reviews, never uh, um, asked anybody what they, I, I would just go see something simply because it was out and because it was of interest to me, right? Uh, um, so, so that was super exciting. Um, and yet I saw Hitchcock's Family Plot, which was his last movie in the theaters, the week it came out in Paris, you know? And and that was a, a major event. I can't say that I liked it the first time I saw it because I was fresh off of seeing, you know, his great classics like The Birds and Psycho and North by Northwest. And it was definitely not on par with those films. But with the years and the distance and 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 sort of uh, appreciating his journey as a director, being in his late 70s making making that film, I, I think it's it's absolutely a, a, a masterpiece and funny and the second film by Hitchcock to tackle the supernatural, for example, you know, the birds is supernatural because we don't, it's a phenomenon that's happening. And, and uh, in a family plot at the very end of the film, it turns out that, uh, that the lead character Blanche, played by Barbara Harris, has actual psychic abilities. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is like Hitchcock's second supernatural film, but it's done in a way that's kind of comedic and uh, a thriller. So I'm a lot kinder than I was uh, than when I first saw it. As one tends to get older, one tends to get more generous, right? Uh, uh, um, but it was fun to see it in the theaters. And, I, and again, if you ask me, I can describe what theater I saw it and what time of the day and sort of um, I remember I watched the end credits standing up and I don't remember why I remember that detail. But, you know, those are part of the things that make you as a person. Uh, um, and, and, and it's so great that you're 
Um, and I hope kids today um, have a similar journey with whatever they're discovering, that it just feels so fresh and new. And suddenly you discover a language or an art form that, that, that immediately you connect with. Um, I remember discovering my first, the first time I noticed a film score as part of the tapestry of a film was a score by Bernard Herrmann for a Francois Truffaut movie called Fahrenheit 451. And, and I remember specifically going like, wow, okay, that music elevates the scene, which otherwise looks completely flat and has no dimension to it. That music, you know, carries the whole picture and it did. And, and then, you know, you discover Jaws and John Williams and, and, and uh, Jerry Goldsmith at the time, or I remember seeing the Ten Commandments again with my parents, and, and, and that's in the 70s, by the way, not when horses came out, <laughs> and, 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 and noticing Elmer Bernstein's music and stuff, uh, or The Omen and stuff. I mean, it was so exciting because, you, you, you know, you weren't exposed to that unless unless you made the effort to be exposed to it, if that makes sense, you know? Well, um, cinema in France is almost like a religious experience. What do you think it is about cinemas in France? And, and maybe it had to do with your growing up or, or French people's growing up. What is it about cinema that really gravitated you guys towards, towards going to the cinema? No, I mean, I can tell you that my parents are not at all in not only in the film business, but not at all into movies. So this is something that I think I was born with. In fact, my mom kept a diary about my behavior between zero and seven. And apparently at five years old, I said I wanted to be a director. I don't remember it, you know, but the, the, the second thing I, I do remember, I, I, I don't remember what is the first movie I ever saw, but I remember that the first thing that I did at the movies was looking back at the beam of lights coming from the projectors and being fascinated with the fact that it would go from right to left, left to right at certain moments. And, and my dad allowing me to, to stay after the movie and go up to the projection booth and discovering like kind of like the Wizard of Oz, this dingy, ugly, overheated by xenon light, you know, projection booth and the guy explained to me when you see the dot top of the right hand uh, uh, top of the screen that means I have to switch reels well I felt had been given you know the keys to <laughs> some kind of uh, a, a, a magical kingdom so so I I can say that um my passion came from something to do with my upbringing. Um, all I know is that generally, culturally, uh, 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 cinema, at least when I was growing up, you know, was looked upon as entertainment and not as, as you, you know, even in the same sentence as theater and Moliere and Racine and all the, 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 the boring plays I had to study in school. Um, and so that was something that was inherently part of my genetic that I was born with that you know, I connected to psych psych psychically maybe to, uh, uh, and, um, but then as I got into 
as I got into it, I discovered that people who loved films in France were very different from people who loved films in America. You know, I came to America for the first time in 1977, and, and that was the summer of Star Wars, right, in Athens, Georgia. I just couldn't believe that people were eating while watching a movie. I was just like, what? Because that doesn't exist in France. You would have sort of like, you, you, you know, a, a little short film, and then during a commercial break, you may be able to buy an ice cream. But by the time the movie started, you weren't e e listening to people munching on popcorn or slurping their their drinks, you know? So so uh, um, I, I remember that was the first inkling that there was a difference uh, between uh, uh, the American culture and how you experience entertainment uh, uh, um, from the way that I was experiencing it in, in France. Um, and also... Um, as I, again, started making friends who loved movies and stuff, I would have huge arguments about movies with friends from schools or enemies alike, uh, um, and even teachers, um, and even, you, you know, like sort of, not necessarily, they weren't necessarily teachers, but they would be like people who were watching over you. I don't know that, what, what that's called, you know, in, uh, you know, they were usually a uh, 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 college students who, to make a living, would come at school and watch over kids, you know. And, and, and so if we start talking about movies, and I was the only one, I remember one of the things that stood out was that I was the only one who was into American movies. Like everybody was like a big snob, or did you see the new blah, 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 French or... And while I would go see those films, I did not appreciate them as much as I loved American movies. And that was, I, I mean, the Spielbergs and, and the De Palmas, you know, or even films like Marathon Man, for example, or, you know, thrillers. I just felt, I, I, just, I just felt a real connection to suspense, to... Um, spectacles. I mean, one of my big, big event film was The Towering Inferno. You know, like sort of like those disaster films. And there was something so huge about that uh, that I, um, I connected to that. But there was a, also like films that were dramas, like An Unmarried Woman, for example, or Julia, or Three Women, the Altman movie, or even a movie called The Competition with Amy Irving and Richard Dreyfuss. I was absolutely fascinated with a portrait of America, of, of, of sort of like what they ate, what, they, you know, commercials on TV. Like, I remember on Close Encounters, there's a beer commercial in the movie at some point. And I was just like, that is so fascinating to me that there's this beer commercial. You know, like things like that, there were cultural uh, 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 things that are taken for granted when you live in America. But when you're a kid and you live in a small town in France, that just feels like planet Mars, right? And um, and and it was it was very early on. And when I came to Athens in 1977 for the year of Star Wars, where I was super young, I immediately knew that this was the country for me. This was the culture for me. 
and 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 there was a whole vibe that um, I I connected with. And again, you know, I not to bring the supernatural and all this. I, I it's not something that was um, uh, um, put in my brain by anyone or or anything. It's just something that just kind of happened. What do you think it was about the behind the scenes and the documentary style that you really gravitated towards? Did you really want to make feature films or did you see something in, in the documentary and the behind the scenes that you felt like you had a personal connection with and you wanted to tell that story? Well, you know, I, I was always um, fascinated by how, again, quoting that story of my first introduction to film is not looking in front of me, but seeing behind me, how is it done? So I think I had that in me. Then I, I, I did have a, a um, kind of, uh, I started working in a film lab, the, the one big film lab in France called Eclair. My grandmother actually worked there in color timing. Um, and she got me to, to do, um, uh, you, you know, to work during the summer in that lab. And I would look at dailies every day, like Tess uh, and French movies that no one has heard of. But um, it was fascinating to work with the color timer at the time. You know, they would they would print up the dailies and then they would take one frame and they would do the different colors and more magenta and more yellow, blah, 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 you know. And, and so I'm super young then, right? And I'm starting to be like just really fascinated with all those aspects of, of making movies that year they're shooting Moonraker, the James Bond movie in France at that studio because uh, uh, for tax reasons. <laughs> and so that's the first Bond movie that's actually not shot at Pinewood. If I'm correct, I, I believe that was the only Bond film that was not shot at Pinewood um, on the heels of The Spy Who Loved Me, uh, which was shot at Pinewood. But Moonraker was all shot, obviously, on location in, in Rio and other places. But all the studio work is done in Paris. And I was able to go on the set. And for the first time, I saw the Luma Crane, which Spielberg had used on 1941, but was a camera, uh, kind of an arm uh, um, with a camera at the end of it that could do 360, and it was operated from the floor. It was, it, I mean, it was kind of crazy, right? And here I am, I'm seeing Richard Keel, and I'm seeing Michael Lonsdale, and Roger Moore, and Lois Giles, and I'm inside that spaceship. I mean, it was, it was crazy, and I was totally fascinating. It was it was a totally fascinating experience, and so I was always attracted to 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 look at things, and and I was always super proud of noticing continuity errors in movies, or oh my god, look closely and you see them the mics, you know, shadow on the wall or whatever. I I I, I always got a kick out of demystifying the the um, the way things were were done and, and for audiences. Um, so that was kind of a natural thing. Uh, for me, I had a real interest in that. And also I was fascinated with the way that stories are told. You know, like I remember reading the novel from Jaws and going like, wait a minute, 
this is like nothing like the movie. Yes, you have the shark, but the ending, that love affair between, you know, uh, 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 Hooper and Martin's wife. I'm like, what? You, you know, suddenly you, again, be, being like completely a virgin kind of mind, I'm like, oh, there is such thing as adapting uh, uh, a book to the screen and and making changes that that are more fitting for for screen stories. So so that was also something that fascinated me. And in fact, my first job in Hollywood was um, uh, as a story editor and and feature film development because I was really good. Uh, at working with writers and ideas and going into the brain of a of a writer and seeing how do you how do you tell a story um, so I was fascinated with that so when that field sort of was in its infant years, uh, I hooked in with uh, first criterion on a very kind of basic level but it 's not until I met with Marty Cohen, who sadly passed away also during this time, uh, who was the head of post-production for Steven Spielberg, um, that uh, they'd heard of me and they heard I really liked 1941. And, that, you know, it's sort of like, I don't know, the, the, the word of me was good, <laughs> at least in regards to that movie. And, and so they wanted to... to um, to see if I would do a documentary. And I was just like, yeah. And, and that's how it started. Uh, but to answer another aspect of your question was, I, of course, always wanted to direct movies. That was my ultimate goal. Um, and it still is. I, I, I feel um, that I still have that desire to tell a story that's purely my film. Um, but I have to say that when I moved to America, I just said to myself, I just want to be in the film business. I want to be part of that family. I want to be part of it. And I don't care if it means, you, you know, uh, um, picking up garbage on the film set. I don't care. I didn't care about, uh, money and I didn't care about any sort of recognition or fame that never ever ever entered my mind and luckily that's the kind of stuff still doesn't enter my mind in regards to awards and stuff like this because that is so destructive there's so much more to filmmaking than than getting an award or getting the recognition I mean look I was reading an article the other day that when the movie The Thing by John Carpenter came out was the same summer as, as E.T. Well, needless to say, The Thing had no, no not a chance to, 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 to rival, <laughs> same studio, and, and it was a disaster to the point where John Carpenter, I mean, I, I, I believe is sort of wrote at the time how uh, detrimental it was to his career. Uh, in fact, he was supposed to direct Firestarter, and they kicked him off the movie. Uh, um, again, that's to be double, triple checked. But something like that, where the thing, which today is considered a masterpiece and a benchmark in, in science fiction, horror, you, you, you know, cinema, nearly destroyed, and I'm sure it affected him as a, 
as a person, you know, trying to make the next movie and trying to 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 keep your career going. And there you are, you know, big summer movie, and it's a total disaster. Well, you, you know, I find that really fascinating that that um, those movements exist within the world of of. of of cinema, and I think it's interesting that I was given a chance to do my first doc was about 1941, which arguably was um, like the thing was John Carpenter was a, a, a disaster. And I remember it was really a nice breaker for me to to meet Stephen around talking about a film that had had a really negative impact, at least at that stage, you know, on his career and and his honesty about about talking about it combined with my uh, uh, love for the film and saying, um, you know, coming at it from a fan perspective really was an amazing experience for me because I could see sort of like how how it had, you you know, impacted him in a way that that is very painful. You know, when you, you think you're making it, it kind of taught me one thing is that is that it takes as much energy and as much work to make the best most successful movie as it does to make the least successful movie and and it's the same sort of dream it's the same dream it's the same conviction that you're doing something that you believe in that's so amazing and there's something very touching about that uh, and very emotional if you put yourself in the perspective of an artist. Um, so anyways, and on and on, I babble, I'm sorry. Oh no, please. <laughs> um, I'm really curious about your process though, because y- you do a lot of films where you have to rely a lot on archival material. Do you prefer films like this where you can essentially look through so much archival material and forge a story out of that? Or do you like being there filming your own stuff, being there from scratch behind the scenes and kind of forging your own story in your own film out of something? Well, the easy answer is that I, I really love both, you know. Um, by the way, edit out each time I say, you know, which is a really bad habit I have. Uh, um, but I, I love both. They're both very different experiences. Um I loved making my series for Netflix, Five Came Back, because that was, um, I've always wanted to sort of tell a story of war and cinema, and I was handed this book, and it was a kind of a, a microcosm of a, of a macro story, you know? Um, and, and so that was an amazing experience. My recent film, Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind for HBO, was uh equally fascinating because I I discovered I was no longer telling the story of a movie star who died tragically, but the story of a family who survived that incredible loss. Um, And and that became almost, um, you know, as if I was doing a narrative film. Um, And then I still have my life doing on-set work, like being part of a film from beginning to end, and sort of figuring out how to tell that story um, and and how to focus and how to have a journey myself and and who to talk to and that's a a great story of discovery and 
and and bonding with the different departments and the filmmakers and and the actors and and that's an experience in itself and then a lot less so today because I guess most of those uh, films have been made, but um, it's only being handed uh, an older title and and doing a bit of de- detective work where you go back to all the, the big files and folders and try to piece back together um, the mystery of the making of Psycho or Rear Window or what have you. Uh, um, it's a little easier when people are still around, like in the case when I did Jaws or or Close Encounters, obviously everybody was still around. Um, no longer true, but back then they were. And, and that was a lot easier. Um, but like when I do Rear Window or some of Strangers on the Train and where there's maybe one or two people left and the rest is kind of up to you to discover. I remember going to, um, and again, remember that when I started doing those, that was before the easy Google search. Um, That didn't exist. So you really had to rely on your smarts to be... um, to be looking in the right places. And, and luckily with Universal, particularly, they would say, okay, you need to go in this warehouse. And they sent me in the heart of the valley. I remember it was super hot and literally walked into something that looks like the last shot of Ray of the Lost Ark, <laughs> except it's five boxes from uh, floor to ceiling that have the universal logo on it and you'd say family plot or frenzy or whatever and they would pull this big box and you would go to some dingy kind of looking uh, uh, office and 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 look through all the paperwork and I would find gems I mean crazy stuff um, correspondence little you, you know, a little note on scribbled by Lou Wasserman on a on a Xerox copy of an article stapled, and I mean, it was crazy. And I'm, I could not believe I was holding this stuff. Right? Um, that was super exciting, super exciting. Well, um, when you're in the vault, do you just glance over and, and see a title, and and that kind of inspires you, and it just keeps it in the back of your mind that maybe one day you want to come back and and maybe revisit this film as well? It's not possible. There are like thousands and thousands of boxes. (laughs) And they're not titled, they're numbered, if my memory serves me right. But there was a time where there was a real appetite for those old titles, and I would uh, do the best I could to think ahead of the market or of the demand, because again, when this started, uh, and we're talking about Laserdiscs, right? Uh, um, the studios wanted more to focus on current titles, or on, you know, the obvious uh, um, classic like Jaws or Psycho. But when it came to hey, let's do Saboteur by Hitchcock, like what's that? Uh, um, and and here I am interviewing Norman Lloyd, who just turned, I think, 104. But uh, um, it, it, it was great opportunities to, to, uh, to be able to say to them. I mean, I remember uh, um, 
I was asked by Sony or Columbia to do this documentary on Last Picture Show. And I said, yes, I'm super excited. I love that movie. But I'd love to do Obsession also, which you own by Brian De Palma. And they said, well, if you can shoot on the same day an interview for Last Picture Show and for Obsession, then, you know, um, we're cool with that. So the gymnastic I had to do uh, um, in order to really... Uh, be able to to uh, to film my interviews for Obsession and Last Picture Show on the same day. That was not easy, but I'm, I I made it. And and of all the films that I did for Brian De Palma, that was the one where he sent me a note after seeing the kind of uh, rough cut, and he said something along the lines of, you know, I've because he's a filmmaker that I think has been mostly misunderstood or never had uh, the kind of recognition that he deserved. Um, And he kind of said something, and I'm misquoting, but something along the lines of, I've never been on time. I've always been either before my time or after my time. But watching your film on the making of my film reminded me why I do what I do and why I love doing what I do. And that made me feel great because if there was one person that you always want to be uh, happy is the actual director of the original film you're talking about. And, and sad that I never got to meet Hitchcock, but I, I would hope that he would be uh, happy with the sort of work I did on his films because I always looked at his films from trying to understand him and trying to understand his creative interest, um, even when he made a film like, let's say, Torn Curtain, which is far from being uh, an amazing film, but has so many interesting things in it. And I was always, um, I, I was actually often criticized for that, but I'm not one to want to uh, criticize anything. No one is interested in what I have to say about the film. Um, what I think is interested, what I think is interesting, is what it took to make that film, and 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 why why did this artist want to tell that story? And like I said, um, it takes the same amount of insane energy and creativity to make a film that will be psycho than it it would to make a movie that would be torn curtain. Um, and and that's that in itself is a fascinating thing. It just tells you about the randomness of of art in many ways. Um, and 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 um, I I just I'm proud of of the work I've done on on those films um, only because they're not films that are uh, necessarily quoted or remembered. But if you give them a chance. Um, there's something to learn from them. You mentioned having to juggle some things at the exact same time when you were making them. When you tackle something like Five Came Back, do you pretty much have to set aside everything for a really long period of time and really focus on that? Or were you making other things at the exact same time? No, I'm a multitasker. I actually thrive on having different things going at the same time. When you do a documentary film, it is very, it's pretty much impossible to 
to approach it like a narrative where you would say, okay, I'm going to shoot for a month or two months or whatever, and then I'm going to be editing for six months and have that sort of rigorous kind of schedule. It's, it's almost impossible because it takes a life of its own. You're not going according to script, right? Uh, um, so um, it, it requires um, intense concentration. With 5 came back, I have never been so intensely prepared um, and I actually even did an interview that never appeared in the film with the author of the book to, so that I could kind of build with my editor a, 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 a rough cut of the film so that I would know what were the stories that were, you know, we had to condense the book from 600 pages to a, a three-hour program, so that's really crazy. Um, and 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 I, I I really needed to see what are my transitions, how do I keep the thing in suspense? How do I cut back and forth between those five guys without losing track of who they are and where they are, historically and geographically? So um, um, it was a really interesting evolution with that project, um, and uh, it doesn't happen. It, it's not something that that you can schedule to um, in the same way that you schedule a regular film. I mean, you have a contract, so you kind of know where you're going, but um, it's, um, it's, it's not the same. So if I was doing a narrative film, obviously during the time that I'm filming that film, that's all I can do. I, I, I cannot be filming anything else. I, I have to be. But... On a documentary, it's a little more, you know, spread out, and and uh, um, uh, so so I continue. Um, when I was editing Natalie Wood, I was also working on a film in New York. Uh, so at at night, I would come home from the set, and it was still, you know, like three p.m. or two p.m. here uh, in L.A. So I would. FaceTime with my editor, Jason, and we would we would work for like three, four hours. Um, and and then uh, giving my notes, we would discuss all the stuff and then same thing the next day and the day after that. Uh, uh, but I was able to do different things also at the same time. You mentioned bringing um, Five Came Back down a little bit from what it was in the book. Did you film all that? And is that kind of on the cutting room floor? Or did you kind of condense it before you even went and started trying to edit the archival material? No, I, I, I worked very closely with Mark Harris, the writer, because he had lived with that story for years and he was the best judge of what needed to stay in and what, you, in fact, originally... Uh, Netflix had discussed with me uh, making this a feature-length documentary because we felt could have it was still under the old rules of the Academy that potentially we would get nominated or there there was um, a lot of advertise there was a lot of uh, uh, pluses to having uh, the film be feature-length. And what I mean by feature it was two hours or two hours and 15 minutes. I, I personally feel it is one of the single most important documentaries ever made, film-wise, music-wise. Oh. How, that, how that is put together, the, 
the feeling that you get from start to finish on that, I think that that is true cinema perfection. It is one of the top five most important documentaries ever made. And if anybody hasn't seen it, I truly believe that they just go, go watch it, please. <laughs> well, th thank you. That, that means a lot. Uh, um, but uh, Mark Harris said there's just no way you can do justice to the story in two hours. Three hours, yes, I'll compromise to three. And it wasn't much of a compromise because I do feel that there is great, um, there's something really great about, um, about knowing that you have a limited amount of time to pass on a message. Um, it's a difference between telling someone you can talk for two hours or you, you, you or let's say, let me try start again. There's a big difference between telling someone, listen, you got 15 minutes to sell me your idea or saying, you know what, just take your time because you're going to go all over the place. I think, I think the more you, you are restricted by time and by structure, the more you're forced to really um, make an effort to, to stay on track. There is such thing in editorial called the rabbit hole where, where suddenly there's, oh my God, there's this great story. And, but that story takes you like, whew, like way, way, way back. And, and you cannot come back from that. And, and that's something that we always laugh with, with my editors. Um, particularly that happened mainly on Natalie Wood, which stayed, we had said it has to be an hour and 45 minutes and it was an hour and 45 minutes. Um, and I had to do a lot of sacrifices because I had to stay on track with what I felt the story was, which was the story of a family. So uh, the making of West Side Story, the making of Bunny and Clyde, that was not feeding necessarily in, um, it, for, from uh, like behind the scenes stories, was fascinating, but it just didn't feed into the story I was telling of her. So it was much more interesting to talk about, you know, how she felt while she was making uh, uh, West Side Story and Bunny and Clyde as she was breaking up for the first time with R.J. Wagner. That was more interesting than how did they make the movie? That makes sense. So, so, so same thing with Five Came Back, but on Five Came Back, there was a much more uh, rigorous uh, um, histor historical facts that if you didn't mention those historical facts, then then you may as well not make the film because because that's a mistake. So so Mark was there the whole time. He wrote a script for each of the three episodes. Uh, that that was like my bible, which I've kept. Is the one thing I've kept from making the film is that script that he did because it was just so, um, such an incredible guide for me and kept me really on track to tell the stories. Well, speaking of the Natalie Wood documentary, was it Natasha Wagner that came to you or did you have this in mind and, or, or was this something even uh, apart from both of you and this was an HBO kind of a thing and they brought you in and they brought Natasha in? How, how did the whole thing come to be? So for Natalie Wood, um, 
a friend of mine who is a colleague, his name is uh, uh, Manoa Bowman. He's kind of a film archivist and he's written several books on Fellini, Grace Kelly, and Natalie Wood. And he had collaborated with Natasha and her family on a beautiful coffee table book about Natalie Wood. And he called me and he said, you know, while we were working on the film, we saw, you know, I found all those home movies that had never been shown before. Even the family had not seen it. I have all this correspondence and writing and photos. Do you think there would be a good documentary? And if so, can you recommend me to a director? And I said, uh, what about me? <laughs> um, so uh, we laughed and he said, well, let me organize a lunch with Natasha and you and me and let's see if you guys hit it off. And if you do, then let's see if we can do something. So, so I had lunch with Manoa and Natasha and Natasha was absolutely, I mean, you know, just an incredible human being. Um, it was kind of bizarre because as you talk to her, she starts looking and acting like her mom. It's kind of, you know, very strange. And same thing, I, I really truly believe that documentaries are very similar to narrative films, is that you have to have an emotional connection and you have to sense that you have a story to tell. Those are the two most important things, you know, in... in, in uh, creating anything. It's emotions and stories, right? So I felt emotionally connected to her. She immediately made me cry, telling me a bunch of stories. And then, and then I could see the story. I'm like, wow, this is a story for today. This is the story really about a woman who is remembered for the way she died and not the way she lived. This is the story of a family who has had to pick itself up and start all over without her being there for them when she was clearly the, the sort of guiding light, you know, uh, of the family. And, and, um, and I felt that's a story that a lot of people will feel great solace because sadly there are a lot of sad stories of that, of that nature of, stories of loss and and um that, that that are ultimately tragic and i felt that it transcended if i may uh, being about hollywood it transcended and also come to find out that she was at the head of a of a really a, a movement that that exists today um about you, women empowerment. And I, I'm like, that is so important to underline the fact that here's a woman who fought for uh, equality of salaries and, and, and uh, respect and who had power. She is the one who imposed Robert Redford in her movie Inside Daisy Clover when no one would wanted to hire him. Not that he wouldn't have had an amazing career without her, but she'd still give him his first big screen role. Uh, um, so, and she, she I don't know, I, I, I just fell in love with, I was just a spectator, you know, to her talent and, and getting to know her through her family uh, was uh, very, very powerful. And arguably the most emotional documentary I ever had to do because at some point you knew you had to talk about losing her. Uh, 
So you could be all funny and jovial and talk about the good old days. All you wanted at some point you talk about, about, you know, loss. And there was not one interview that had me, um, you know, not crying. And, and it was very genuine. You know, I, I, I'm that way. Like I, I tend to, when I start a project, I, I immerse myself as much as I, I may be doing several things um, at the same time. Um, for Five Came Back, I bought autographs from all of the directors, the five directors, and I would touch them and I would s- smell the paper of their books and, and that they had touched and stuff. I'm not trying to say I'm a method kind of guy, but, but it's very important for me to have a tactile, emotional, and, and, and channel the emotions. So therefore, when I talk to, to people who knew Natalie, her family, and we start talking about loss to her daughters, I mean, I'm, I've, I'm literally in another, in another sphere. I'm right there with them. And I always talk to my DPs like where I'm like, do not ask me any technical question past a certain point on the day of filming because I'm, I'm so focused I, I literally cannot see anything else. It sounds very pretentious. I hope it doesn't. But I, I, I just literally, I am so immersed that um, I can't hear anything. I can't see anything. But I, I, I try as much as I can to be uh, an emotional conduit. And that's not for my benefit, it's for the benefit of the viewers. We're going to watch this. I want them to to feel that I brought out of those people what they would have brought out of them had they been there in my shoes, you know. So, um, so that's how that came. That's how it came about. Uh, after Natasha Manoa and I decided to make the film, I went to Amblin because I have been working with Amblin for. Uh, what, 30 years or something. And so I always go to them first to say, hey, do you want to partner up with me? Is that something that would interest you? And, and, and Stephen particularly was like, oh, wow, this is your next big movie. I remember him specifically saying to me, Laurent, your, your next big break is Natalie Wood. And, and I'm like, did you know her? No, never met her, but I'm a huge fan. I cannot wait to discover her story in your hands and... He was so, it so empowered me that he was so into it, you know, and, and very instrumental, by the way, he reviews the cuts. I have two producers at Amblin, Daryl and Justin, but Steven is very much part of, a, of, of that fold. And even the trailer, he was, it was so great to get his one note and that made huge difference. I mean, that's the brilliance of the man. And same thing with Five Came Back, to which he participated on camera, but was also extremely helpful uh, with pacing and with um, uh, little things that brought it up way up, you know. And I'm not just saying this because I don't take it for granted. It, it, it is amazing to get uh, a feedback from him on anything because he always has his finger on 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 something that I'm like oh my god you know what I I thought of it but I I didn't want to do it or you you, you know he confirms something or he'll bring up something that you didn't see I, it's pretty it's pretty uh it's I'm very blessed in other words to to have that uh, relationship so that's how uh, Natalie would come about 
uh, with uh, just this chance uh, phone call from um, someone I've known and collaborated with uh, over the past few years. And I'm glad he did. So were you um, doing behind the scenes on Spielberg's West Side Story at the same time that you were doing the Natalie Wood? Was that like a surreal experience getting to work on the new West Side Story and working on that as well? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's as surreal as it gets for sure. Uh, And then now you're working on Mama's Boy, correct? The uh, Dustin Lance Black? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, What can we expect from that? Is there any um, release date talked about yet or anything revolving around that? Um, you know, it's a little hard to, to, um, to talk about it because of the uh, a sad situation with COVID, you know. So uh, until that's resolved, um, um, I can't really... I, I, I'm projecting things and I'm hoping that things are going to get better and safer and healthier um, in the next couple of months and I'm going to be able to start filming. The thing that this time has allowed me to to do more than ever is to really focus on on the book, um, which I've read several times now and and I've also listened to uh, the audiobook, which was very helpful, and, um, and to work with Lance really who is a remarkable human being um, and to work with my producers and, and, and to really start uh, figuring out um, how we're going to make this movie. The thing that's been interesting, that is the story of division through, um, again, you know, my attraction to micro stories that tell a a macro uh, uh, theme Um, it really is a story of division, and and uh, when we were going to start filming was prior to the election, uh, um, and now that we've had the election is a completely different type of division that exists. Um, so I I'm almost uh, not to trivialize the crisis we're in. Uh, I, I I am happy that I'm getting to to make the film post election. Uh, because I'm going to get much closer to something that's current and truthful as opposed to prior to the election uh, uh, that may have colored the, the story in a different, in a different kind of way. Uh, um, so so um, the story has evolved with our world, um, and I really hope um, I get to start filming soon, but we're absolutely ready to go. Uh, we have uh, an amazing team. Um, it's going to be fantastic and very different from anything I've ever done before. Um, and uh, and that's, that's uh, super exciting. Amongst other projects that are piling up and hopefully we'll all go at different times, but, but uh, um, I'm, I'm, you know, it was interesting. I got more, I got more, um, exposure from Natalie Wood than I did from Five Came Back. Five Came Back was much more, was a, a much, uh, uh, what is it? It's, it's a film that still, I still get echoes from today, but the, the year it came out, I can't say that it, it rocked anything. Uh, um, at, at least 
you, you know, from uh, um, the number of calls. I, if I have to compare it to, to the number of offers I've gotten from uh, Natalie Wood, it's not even comparative. I, I can't even compare. So, um, and also Natalie Wood came out worldwide. It was at the Lumiere Festival in France and, and the French had never contacted me about anything. And suddenly I have, you know, people. <laughs> uh, uh, so, so it's interesting that um, um, Natalie Wood got, uh, you know, opened a lot of doors for me, and I'm extremely grateful to her, her family, Manoa, everybody who helped me, uh, Amblin, make this film, HBO. Well, finally, what would you say that you've learned the most out of your career over the past 30-plus years? I would say that the thing I've learned the most is to constantly reinvent yourself. And... um and to constantly thrive for more. Um, I'll argue it's harder to win an Oscar than it, no, it's, it's harder to have longevity than it is to win an Oscar, you know, that, um, and I'll tell you like there's so many people that I interviewed in the past who are completely forgotten and were in their times the hardest thing ever and are today completely forgotten. And, and it has to do with, um, you, you know, uh, the, 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 how difficult and challenging it is to constantly reinvent yourself and to market yourself and to, to, to look for new things to do and new stories to tell. And, and, and change your ways of doing things and approaching things. And, and so, I, and even more so today, because there's so much more comp- there's so much more competition. I mean, when you think that five years ago, documentary filmmaking was still a niche market. Today, you have a new sales of new sales of documentaries every day in deadline, if not two or three. It's crazy, and and so 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 now it's almost like and it's fantastic, by the way, uh, but. Um, that just gives you a sense of like how quickly things can can change. So for me, the biggest lesson is you know uh, uh, to to stay relevant and stay um, stay uh, ahead of of your time. And and you know, frankly, at the same time, tell the stories you believe in. I I, I try not to force myself to tell a story that I, I, I don't believe in. Now, you may be totally surprised by the kind of stories I'm, I'm about to be telling because some of them are completely outside the, the realm of movies, but they happen to tap into something that's of interest to me outside movies, right? Uh, Mama's Boy being uh, uh, an example, even though Lance is an Oscar-winning screenwriter, um, the story is not really a story of Hollywood. Um, so, um, it's, uh, I, I love that. I love that I can still, uh, dream about, um, making a a narrative film. I'm developing a really great script right now with a, a writer, with an author, um, and, and it's super exciting. I just cast a, a lead in it and, 
I mean, it's, you know, I'm blessed that, that all those things are coming to me and, and um, who knows if they will happen. But the, the other thing I think I've learned is to enjoy the process, enjoy the journey, because it's such a long, long journey to between the time that you think of something and the time that it comes out. It is such a long journey. When you finally sell it, you're like, oh, my God, I'm done. No, this is when it starts. Now you have to freaking make the thing. And when you're done making it, now you have to release it. But they said to you, well, it's not going to come out this year because there's a competing project or something. You have to wait another year and, and, and so on. So if you're not enjoying, if you're just looking for that ultimate climactic ending, you're not enjoying the process. It's almost like a movie. You can't appreciate the ending if you've not gone through the entire story, right? So, so I'm, I'm, uh, um, it's another lesson for me is to be patient and enjoy the process because everything I've ever done, even stuff that just seems very uh, um, remote, has fed into something else I've eventually done. I, I, I was, I can't remember who I was talking to, but I was saying, oh my God, the fact that I met this big, big movie star years ago and we bonded over something together and we laughed and stuff, just got me a project recently. And we're talking about a time where I still had hair, uh, uh, um, which is a long time ago. And And so I'm like, wow, it's amazing that I was able to, within a two hour interview to make an impression on that person and that, and, and that it's taken 20, 25 years for it to pay off in a way that's unexpected. So, you know, I'm not that patient, but, but it's, it's an interesting thing when, when you uh, are asked questions like yours, you know, to, to sort of look at things like, Oh, that's so funny. Um, how, how things, you know, work. Who knew that when I was bugging my parents for pocket money to buy, you know, my posters and my lobby cards. And I mean, and I still have all that stuff and I'm using it in my documentaries today. You know, I'm using it in a new book I'm going to be writing. I'm a, I mean, that stuff is, was the best investments my parents ever made, <laughs> you know. So there you go. Well, Laurent, thank you so much for coming on here today. It really means a lot to me. I think you're such an important filmmaker and I'm, I'm very excited to see anything that you have coming up. Hollywood, not Hollywood documentaries, feature length films. I'm really excited for all of this. So thank you. Well, no, thank you for your interest. I, I, I hope, there are a few little uh, things that, uh, that will make it into your podcast, but, uh, um, uh, that's just super sweet. Of course. Thank you so much, Laurent. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Be well, be safe. Thank you for listening. Make sure to catch Laurent Bozarayu at nedlandmedia.com. That Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind, is available now on HBO, HBO Max in the United States, and Crave in Canada. And make sure to catch Five Came Back, available now everywhere on Netflix. It's such an important documentary. He's an important filmmaker. All of his documentaries have been eye-opening 
and amazing. So make sure you check Laurent out. And this concludes our broadcast day.